Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 173 of the GDPR Weekly Show. And coming up in this week's episode, we have news of a data breach at ITIA. We have news of a data breach at the Midlands Partnership NHS Trust. We have news that the UK Cabinet Office has been fined half a million pounds by the ICO after their New Year's Honours data breach back in 2020. We learn that Surrey schools are not sharing pupil information because of data protection fears. We then have an update on the Irish HSE data breach. And we then travel to Ohio in the USA, where genetics company DDC has had a data breach. We then travel to Ottawa in Canada, where CEPEO has had a data breach. And we then return to America and to New York, where Huntington Hospital has had a data breach. We then travel south to Florida, where Broward County School District has had a data breach. And then to Los Angeles, where Planned Parenthood has had a data breach. We then travel to Oregon, where a man has been charged by the FBI after the ubiquity data breach. And then to Japan, where Panasonic has had a data breach. We then to return to the UK and the ICO has issued mandatory guidance to ad tech companies. We then travel over to Europe where the EU proposes standards for artificial intelligence data sharing. And remaining in the EU, we have news that the European Commission has been accused of maladministration on GDPR enforcement by an Irish civil liberties group. And also that a top EU official hints at GDPR enforcement changes. And then finally this week we travel back over to America where the SEC is taking an increasing interest in organisations' cyber security. So there's always a mixed range of articles for you this week. We hope that you find the information in the articles useful and informative. If you have any feedback for us, please do email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We do read every single piece of feedback we receive and wherever possible we incorporate your suggestions for improvements into the show. Unfortunately, due to the volume of feedback we receive, it's not always possible for us to respond to each piece of feedback individually. We are extremely pleased to announce the launch of our first book called GDPR Made Simple. It's available right now on Amazon. So if you just go to Amazon and search for GDPR Made Simple, you will find our book. Alternatively, go to gdprmadesimple.club and you can click through from our new website there directly to the page to buy the book on Amazon. For a limited period until the end of November, it's only £7.99, which is a saving of £7 on the normal price. As its name suggests, we've made it a very simple guide to GDPR, but nonetheless a guide which covers everything that you need to do to ensure that your organisation is UK GDPR compliant. And so we'd be extremely grateful if you'd purchase a copy of our new book. Profits from the book help to go towards the cost of running the GDPR weekly show. And of course, if you've got any feedback on the book, then please either leave the feedback on Amazon or alternatively, email us as usual at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We really hope you like the book. We've put many hours into its production and we hope, like the podcast, you find it extremely useful. We begin this week with news that global furniture giant IKEA has confirmed it is wrestling with a cyber attack on its systems, with evidence indicating its Microsoft Exchange servers may have been compromised. IKEA confirmed that a full-scale investigation into the incident is underway, and there is no indication that customer data had been compromised. Other IKEA organisations, suppliers and business partners are all said to be affected by the attack. 
IT's IT team have informed staff that malicious emails are being circulated around the business and are appearing as a genuine reply to an existing email chain. Email chain hijacking is one of the unique identifiers of the recent squirrel waffle mail spam campaign that exploits an unpatched vulnerability in Microsoft Exchange Service to distribute the Oakbot malware payload. Emails can seemingly come from trusted colleagues or outside companies a staff member has previously collaborated with, increasing the likelihood of a social engineering-led cyber attack seed. In a statement, an ITA spokesperson said, Actions have been taken to prevent damages and a full-scale investigation is ongoing to seal and solve the issue. We take the matter very seriously as safeguarding personal data is a primary concern for ITA. It is of our highest priority that ITA customers, co-workers and business partners feel certain that their data is secured and handled correctly. To ensure this, we use security technology to encrypt all personal information, including credit card numbers, addresses and other information. We have no indication that customer data has been compromised. ITA is encouraging staff to remain extra vigilant when monitoring their inboxes for phishing emails, specifically for emails that contain links that have seven numbers at the end. These links are believed to be associated with the attacker's campaign and lead to the download of a malicious Microsoft Excel document. We have told our staff to report suspicious emails immediately to the IT team and inform them of the sender's email address over Microsoft Teams in chat. If we receive any further update from ITA, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year from the GDPR Weekly Show. Stay safe, stay home, save lives. Midlands Partnership NHS Trust shared the email addresses of a number of people taking part in a COVID vaccine trial. The Midlands Partnership NHS Trust sent an email to recipients who could all see each other's addresses. The trust, based in Stafford, said it had investigated the incident and concluded it was due to human error. The case has been reported to the ICO. The data breach occurred last month when one of the trust's administrators and team emailed people taking part in the trial. They used the carbon copy or CC field instead of the blind carbon copy or BCC field to anonymise the recipients. The trust tried to recall it, but in a letter sent to recipients, admitted it could not be sure no one had opened the email. The way their team works has been revised and the manager has undergone additional training. A spokesperson for the NHS Trust said it has sincerely apologised for the error and the ICO has accepted the actions taken. The ICO said that after reviewing the information from the trust, it gave them data protection advice and closed the case with no further action being taken. Now, if you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you'll know that this is one of the most common data breaches that we come across, and it is starting to get financial penalties from the ICO in some cases, although the ICO in this case was obviously satisfied with the action that the NHS Trust took. But we can't emphasise enough how simple it is to avoid this. Just make sure that if you're sending emails out to people outside of your organisation that you use BCC rather than CC in your emails. It takes a minute to get it right. It can take hours and hours of work if you get it wrong. And of course, it might also be a financial penalty if you get it wrong. So just simply get it right. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse Thursday 4pm UK time. The UK Cabinet Office has been fined half a million pounds by the ICO after the postal addresses of the 2020 New Year's Honours recipients were disclosed online. If you're already a listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you might remember that way back in episode 72, we first brought you news of this data breach. The ICO has found that officials failed to put in place appropriate technical and organisational measures to prevent the unauthorised disclosure of personal information in breach of data protection law. Prominent public figures who had their home addresses published on the 27th of December 2019 on the Gov.uk website included Alton John, 
the cricketer Ben Stokes, NHS England's then Chief Executive Simon Stevens, the TV chef Nadia Hussain, and the former Director of Public Prosecutions Anderson Saunders. The list also included addresses of more than a dozen MOD employees and senior counter-terrorism officers. In its finding, the ICO said the personal data of more than 1,000 people was available online for a period of 2 hours and 21 minutes, and it was accessed 3,872 times. The ICO said in its ruling on Thursday that the Cabinet Office removed the web link to the file once it became aware of the error, but that it was still cached and therefore accessible online to people who had the exact web page address. At the time of the breach, the former Work and Pensions Secretary, Ian Duncan-Smith, who was enabled on the 2020 list and whose address was published, said it was a complete disaster. ICO Director of Investigations Steve Eckersley said the Cabinet Office's complacency and failure to mitigate the risk of a data breach meant that hundreds of people were potentially exposed to the risk of identity fraud and threats to their personal safety. The fine issued today sends a message to other organisations that are looking after people's information safely, as well as regularly checking that appropriate measures are in place, must be at the top of their agenda. The ICO said it had received three complaints from affected individuals who raised personal safety concerns, while the Cabinet Office was also contacted by 27 individuals with similar concerns. It said the exposure of honours recipients' addresses was related to the Cabinet Office incorrectly installing a new IT system for processing honours. This meant that the system generated a CSV file, commonly used on spreadsheets, that included postal addresses. The ICO said the Cabinet Office had since improved the security of its systems. A Cabinet Office spokesperson said the Cabinet Office would like to reiterate our apology for this incident. We take the findings of the Information Commissioner very seriously and have completed an internal review as well as implemented a number of measures to ensure this cannot happen again. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Schools in Surrey are refusing to share information that could help protect children because they're afraid to breach GDPR the Surrey coroner was told this week. The safeguarding lead of a Surrey secondary school said they can be unaware of a child's risk in their first week of school because the school they are transferring from is afraid to share safeguarding information earlier. School staff are having to make decisions on whether a placement is suitable for a child based on potentially incomplete information. Laura Newman, joint head of senior school at Cobham Free School, said generally schools will only share all the files once a child has been accepted at the school, and even then they were trying to do this within five days of the start of their placement, which she said was mostly done. She went on to say that five days they could have been on site in school with a very high level of risk and we're unaware. And the school's head says the Department of Education needs to be made aware that the sharing of safeguarding information is impeded. It emerged that the first day of a Prevention of Future Deaths hearing on Monday, after Stain's teenager Austin Nash's inquest revealed that Cobb and Freestall had no knowledge of Austin's history of suicidal thoughts or self-harm when they accepted him as a new pupil in March 2019. This was shared neither by Austin's previous school, the Goldwyn Special School St Dominic's, nor by the County Council's Children's Services Department. Austin, 14, who had previously spoken at school about ending his life on a railway line, went on to do so in January 2020. If the full picture had been made available to the mainstream school, it's highly likely they would have said they were unable to meet his complex needs, the court heard. The school had less than 20 people to additional needs outlined in an educational housing care plan, and staff were not sufficiently trained to monitor the risk of suicide in an autistic pupil. Since officers' interest, staff have been trained by Young Minds Mental Health Charity in self-harm and suicidal ideas, and pastoral staff now have terminally training from an autism specialist. The responsibility for sharing information laid with the schools, not the Special Educational Needs Team, according to Julie Beckett, Education Inclusion Service Manager at Surrey County Council. 
Ms Newman told the coroner they had received 14 EHCP applications so far for September 2022 from six different stores and on the store's request to share safeguarding files, all but one store had refused. She said relevant information was laying in other store records, but they had to rely on the EHCP alone, although sometimes the SCN coordinator from the previous store would verbally share information. In Austin's case, the county council's SCN team had not given them the updated version of the EHCP. So how can you properly assess if a store is suitable, asked Allenson Hewitt, barrister for the coroner. You can't, said Miss Newman. I would like to see advice given by some county councils to stores that they were allowed to share safeguarding files in advance. She told the coroner's court that she had gone to Surrey County Council for advice, which in turn had taken advice from its own legal team. Ms Newman said, I said, following the request, we had changed our store policy and were asking for safeguarding files, but the stores were not prepared to share them. They were worried about data protection. Education safeguarding advisor Narinda Gozel replied, Under the Data Protection Act, it isn't necessarily or proportionate on all children the store is being consulted on. They sometimes contact multiple stores concurrently and to provide all of these records would be disproportionate. Ms Newman was asked if a store wanted advice from a solicitor at a cost to the public of £80 an hour. Victoria Perry, who since April has been principal to St Dominic's store where Oscar had attended before Cobham, was asked if safeguarding file might contain anything difficult to share with prospective stores before a decision is made. She said there's lots of extremely sensitive information that might lead to problems arising. Malcolm Fortune, the barrister for Surrey County Council, asked Ms Newman, if the HCP has been properly constructed, what more are you looking for that makes you ask for the safeguarding file? She responded, they'd never written on the day the child arrived with us. They might be a year or two out of date. It should reflect all their needs, but there might be something in the past that's not in there. We only get the last annual review, not the previous ones. Mr Forrester asked, is this more about than braces? To which Zoe's senior coroner, Richard Travers, said, this is not about braces. This is a store that's trying to obtain as much relevant information about the child, trying to assess if they can meet their needs. Ms Newman also said that information from CAMS, the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service, was only passed to the store if parents consented, and there had been a case in the past where they'd been unaware of a child's state of mind because that had not happened. Asked if the SDN department would know and let the store know, she said, I'm not sure they would. Ms Newman asked, how does that fit with the government's guidance on working together to safeguard children, to which Ms Newman replied, it doesn't. Although this data protection is in place, we should be sharing safeguarding information to protect those students. Once the store had agreed to take the child, there was no problem with them sharing the information, she said. In Austin's case, it had been too late. Although even when the store informed Surrey County Council's Special Educational Needs team, if it was unable to meet a child's special needs, the final decision on where a child is placed is made by the Council's Special Education Needs panel. Cobham Free Store has class sizes of 26 rather than 30 and receives a large number of requests for pupils with EHCPs. Ms Newman told the court, We're asked to put in a reasonable adjustments form for things like therapists or an extra classroom or a lift. Either they agree to them or they say they don't feel that you need to meet the EHCP. Parental preference is given as a reason that they're placed with us. She said they always have a conversation with parents directly, but it's never been my experience that a parent has changed their mind. Michaela Tatib executive head who founded the free store said she recalled a couple of occasions in the last year where they'd been required to take pupils after saying no. Asked what they were doing strategically when the designated safeguarding needs are not being given files requested, she said, I don't think there's a huge amount we can do. It's making the Department for Education aware it's at that sort of level. The hearing continues and if we get any more updates from the hearing we will of course bring them to you here on the GDPR Weekly Show. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you might remember that back in episode 92, we brought you details of a data breach at the Irish HSE. This week, 
the information on that data breach has been updated. And to give you a bit of background, on the 15th of May 2021, the Data Protection Officer for the HSE made a data breach notification to the Data Protection Commission in Ireland, which is their equivalent of our ICO. In the notification, the DPO announced that on the 14th of May 2021, the HSE had suffered a data security breach of its IT systems. In the notification, the DPO set out the facts. 4.9 million people were affected by the breach and the data disclosed included data subject identity data, i.e. name, surname, date of birth, PPSN details, contact details, passport and license number details, economic and financial data and location data. Further, special strategy data, including trade union data, health data, biometric data and genetic data had also been disclosed. The DPO clarified that possible consequences for certain individuals included loss of control over their personal data, identity theft, fraud, damage to reputation and the loss of confidentiality of personal data protected by professional secrecy. The DPO described the threat of the above risks to the individuals as severe. It was thought that these risks were not communicated correctly and urgently enough to the individuals concerned. The cyber attack seemed to have had a lot of coverage in the media, but little information was disclosed to individuals personally. Article 33 of GDPR requires that in the case of a personal data breach, the controller shall without undue delay and where feasible not later than 72 hours after having become aware of it, notify the personal data breach to the supervisory authority. It seems that Article 33 was complied with given the correspondence between HSE and the DPC following the incident. Article 34 of GDPR states that when the personal data breach is likely to result in a high risk to the rights and freedoms of natural persons, the controller should communicate the personal data breach to the data subject without undue delay. Originally, the DPC was informed by the HSE that data subjects would be notified both in the media and personally from the 20th of May 2021. This does not appear to have happened, however, and may result in a breach by the HSE of Article 34 GDPR. In addition, when people tried to contact the HSE to discuss their concerns over the cyber attack, they received what appeared to be an automatic email in response. The apparent national compliance article 34 may give rise to claims from individuals seeking damages. The knock-on effect of this data breach is that Irish government officials have agreed to increase their spending on state cyber security following the attack. They propose to kickstart this by appointing a head of the National Cyber Security Centre. This position was vacant at the time of the HSC attack and it's been criticised that the risk of this attack could have been reduced if that position had been filled. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com To Ohio in America now and DNA Diagnostic Centre, DDC, has disclosed a hacking incident that affected 2,102,436 people. The incident resulted in a confirmed data breach that occurred between May the 24th this year and July the 28th and the firm concluded its internal investigation on October 29, 2021. The information hackers accessed includes the following, full names, credit card number and CVV, that's the number on the back of course, debit card number and CVV, financial account number and the account password. The compromised database contained older backups dating between 2004 and 2012 and is not linked to the active systems and databases used by DDC today. The impacted database was associated with the National Genetic Testing Organisation that DDC has never used in its operations and has not been active since 2012, the company said. DDC acquired certain assets from this National Genetic Testing Organisation in 2012 that included personal information and therefore impacts from this incident are not associated with DDC. DDC is working with external cybersecurity experts to regain possession of the stolen files and ensure the threat actor won't propagate them further. 
So far, there have been no reports of fraud or improper use of the stolen details. The affected individuals will receive a notification letter and instructions on enrolling for one year of free credit monitoring identity theft protection services through Experian. The recipients of these notices are advised to remain vigilant against fraud and monitor their bank account statements frequently to identify and report any suspicious activity immediately. DDC underlines that no genetic testing data has been exposed due to the data breach incident as this is stored in a different system. The company offers paternity, DNA, relationship, fertility, COVID-19, ancestry and testing for immigration purposes so they hold very sensitive data. According to the notice though, nothing relevant to these services has been compromised. If we hear any more from DCC, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year from the GDPR Weekly Show. Stay safe, stay home, save lives. To Ottawa in Canada now, and Ottawa's French language public school board says it was the victim of a data breach last month affecting current and former employees as well as some students and their families. In a cyber attack on October 18th, hackers gained access to the board's computer network. The Console de l'Etat Public de l'Ontario, CEPEO, said in a statement on Tuesday. The attack targeted 75 gigabytes of data on a server at the CEPEO's main offices. It had personal information of current and former employees dating back to the year 2000. The information included social insurance numbers, bank account details, credit card numbers and dates of birth. The board also said a small number of current students, alumni and their families were affected. The hackers were paid a ransom to get the data deleted, but CEPEO said there's no way to confirm whether the attackers have actually got rid of the files. CEPO is attempting to contact affected individuals and said it will provide them with free credit monitoring service for a period of 24 months. Meanwhile, the board has said steps have been taken to secure the network as a result of the incident. It has conducted an investigation over the past month and a half to determine the extent of the breach. Law Enforcement and the Information and Privacy Commission of Ontario had both been notified. We are extremely pleased to announce the launch of our first book called GDPR Made Simple. It's available right now on Amazon, so if you just go to Amazon and search for GDPR Made Simple, you will find our book. Alternatively, go to gdprmadesimple.club and you can click through from our new website there directly to the page to buy the book on Amazon. For a limited period until the end of November, it's only £7.99, which is a saving of £7 on the normal price. As its name suggests, we've made it a very simple guide to GDPR, but nonetheless a guide which covers everything that you need to do to ensure that your organisation is UK GDPR compliant. And so we'd be extremely grateful if you'd purchase a copy of our new book. Profits from the book help to go towards the cost of running the GDPR weekly show. And of course, if you've got any feedback on the book, then please either leave the feedback on Amazon or alternatively email us as usual, at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We really hope you like the book. We've put many hours into its production, and we hope, like the podcast, you find it extremely useful. <laughs> to New York in America now, and officials say there's been a data breach at Huntington Hospital. The hospital notified about 13,000 patients that their personal information was illegally accessed. Administrators said a night shift employee had allegedly improperly accessed electronic medical patient records between October 2018 and February 2019. The hospital worker has since been dismissed and is charged with a criminal HIPAA violation. As a precaution, Huntington Hospital is offering affected patients complimentary identity theft protection services. 
Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year from the GDPR Weekly Show. Stay safe, stay home, save lives. Staying in America but travelling to Florida now, and Bowood County School District has warned 50,000 students and employees that their data may have been exposed following a ransomware attack. Bowood County School District admitted that personal information could have been accessed by malicious hackers during the cyber attack between November 2020 and March 2021. The district had previously kept details of the incident under wraps and also insisted that no data had been affected. Earlier this week, however, the institution confirmed that the unauthorised access may have potentially included the insensitive information of some faculties, staff and students. A letter from the school district states that an unauthorised person obtained access to the systems between November 12, 2020 and March 6, 2021. It added, on April 19, 2021, the investigation revealed certain records stored in the district systems had been acquired and publicly released. On June 8, 2021, it was determined that the records released by the cybercriminals included information that included individuals' names and social security numbers. On June 29, 2021, further analysis indicated the data access may include information relating to the self-insured house plan, including individuals' names, dates of birth, social security numbers and benefit selection information. Those affected by the breach have been informed and are being offered free credit monitoring services. These individuals have been advised to remain vigilant by reviewing their bank account statements, health provider invoices, explanation of benefit statements and free credit reports for any unauthorised activity. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. Staying in America and going to Los Angeles now, and Planned Parenthood has confirmed that a data breach last month exposed patient records online, including names, dates of birth, addresses, insurance identification numbers, and clinical data like diagnosis, treatment, and prescription information. An unauthorised person accessed the network between October the 9th and October the 17th, installing malware and stealing files. PPLA said it took its systems offline on October the 17th when it noticed suspicious activity, notified law enforcement, and engaged a cyber security company to investigate. On November the 4th, the investigation concluded that patient information was taken and Planned Parenthood Los Angeles is now notifying affected patients. It's believed the data breach has affected around 400,000 patients. In a statement, PPLA said PPLA is mailing notification letters to patients whose information was contained in documents that were exfiltrated from our system. We also encourage patients to review their statements from their healthcare providers or health insurers and contact them immediately if they see charges for services that they did not receive. PPLA has increased network monitoring since the incident and has hired more cybersecurity staff. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Back in episode 138, we brought you details of a data breach at Ubiquity. The cyber attack at Ubiquity Networks was allegedly orchestrated by a former employee of the Internet of Things manufacturer. This is according to an indictment released by the U.S. Department of Justice, which named software engineer Nicholas Sharp as being the trusted insider behind the attack. Sharp is accused of having taken advantage of his authorised cloud lead access to Ubiquiti's Amazon Web Services, AWS, and GitHub servers in order to obtain gigabytes of confidential data, masking his identity with a Surfshark VPN. Posing as an anonymous hacker, it's believed he then contacted his employer demanding a ransom of 50 Bitcoin, which at the time was worth close to $2 million. When Ubiquiti refused to engage, Sharp allegedly released a portion of the stolen data on a publicly accessible online platform, which had not been named by the Department of Justice. It's also alleged that he then posed as a whistleblower to the media in order to accuse Ubiquiti of allegedly downplaying the severity of the breach. 
Ubiquity customers were warned in January to change their passwords after attempting to discover an intruder had accessed corporate systems hosted on Amazon Web Services, although information on the hack was limited at the time. Sharp was arrested on Wednesday in the US state of origin, although the indictment uses the term Company 1 instead of outright naming Ubiquity as a victim, all details as they breach point towards it being Ubiquity. However, Sharp lists Ubiquity as employer at the time of the attack on his LinkedIn profile, having left the company in March 2021, to pursue a senior staff software engineer role at fleet management solutions provider Litex. His plot was uncovered when a temporary internet outage during the data exploitation process unveiled Sharp's home IP address, according to the indictment. Commenting on the news, US attorney Damian Williams said that Sharp faces serious federal charges, which include transmitting a program to a protected computer that intentionally caused damage, transmission of an interstate threat, wire fraud, and making false statements to the FBI. With the four charges combined, Sharp could face up to 37 years in prison. FBI Assistant Director Michael J. Driscoli said that the agency alleges that Sharp created a twisted plot to extort the company he worked for by using its technology and data against it. Mr. Sharp may have believed he was smart enough to pull off his plan, but a simple technical glitch ended his dreams of striking it rich, he added. We will continue to follow this case and bring you updates right here on the GDPR Weekly Show. To Japan now and tech giant Panasonic has confirmed a data breach after hackers gained access to its internal network. In a press release dated November 26th, Panasonic said that its network was illegally accessed by a third party on November 11th and that some data on the file server had been accessed during the intrusion. However, Panasonic have since confirmed that the data breach began on June 22nd and ended on November 3rd, and that it was, but the access was not detected until November 11th. The Osaka, Japan-based company provided few other details of the breach. The company said that in addition to including its own investigation, it's currently working with a specialist third-party organisation to investigate the breach and determine if the breach involved customers' personal information and or sensitive information related to social infrastructure. After detecting the unauthorised access, the company immediately reported the incident to the relevant authorities and implemented security countermeasures, including steps to prevent external access to the network, it said. Panasonic would like to express its sincere apologies for any concern or inconvenience resulting from this incident. If we get any further update from Panasonic, we will of course bring it to you here on the GDPR Weekly Show. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com Back to the UK now and the ICO unveiled new mandatory data protection standards for the ad tech industry on Thursday. New rules apply to companies designing new methods of online advertising as stipulate data protection laws must be followed and excessive data collection must cease, in line with the UK's Data Protection Act 2018. The ICO published the Commissioner's opinion which states data protection abusers must be placed at the forefront of any advertising strategies designed by ad tech firms. Ultimately, new online advertising proposals should improve trust and confidence in the digital economy instead of weakening it, the opinion reads. Solutions should be privacy respectful while ensuring they give due consideration to other relevant laws. Users will have to be given clear opportunities to receive adverts without tracking, profiling or targeting based on excessive collection of personal data, the ICO said. Accountability throughout the entire data collection and processing lifecycle is also now mandatory with companies having to prove who is responsible for what task at which stage of the advertising strategy. Each strategy must clearly identify the purposeful processing of personal data and consider ways to reduce harm and mitigate risk to individual users before processing takes place. Ad tech companies must be fair and transparent about the benefits of data collection, articulating this to the users explicitly and afford users meaningful control over processing where possible. 
The standard data selection and processing rules as set out by the Data Protection Act 2018 will also apply, such as the principle of data minimisation. What we found during our ongoing ad tech work is that companies are collecting and sharing a person's information with hundreds if not thousands of companies about what that person is doing and looking at online in order to show targeting ads or content, said Elizabeth Denham, Information Commissioner at the ICO. Most of the time, individuals are not aware that this is happening or have not given their explicit consent. This must change. The Information Commissioner said, I'm looking for solutions that eliminate intrusive online tracking and profiling practices and give people meaningful choice over the use of their personal data. My office will not accept proposals based on underlying ad tech concepts that replicate or seek to maintain the status quo. It said Doodle's Privacy Sandbox is currently one of the leading proposals in the industry and that the ICO is currently working with the Competition and Markets Authority, the CMA, to review how the model can be applied in the UK. Doodle's Privacy Sandbox aims to replace the use of third-party cookies with other technologies to enable digital advertising. The project is currently subject to antitrust allegations in the US and the EU as it forces advertisers to work with Doodle on ads. The ICO drew attention to failures in the ad tech industry previously, saying it found massive illegality in the space with numerous violations of data protection laws, particularly with real-time bidding. We've approached leading organisations in the ad tech world for comment and we'll bring those comments to you in upcoming episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. We are extremely pleased to announce the launch of our first book called GDPR Made Simple. It's available right now on Amazon, so if you just go to Amazon and search for GDPR Made Simple, you will find our book. Alternatively, go to gdprmadesimple.club and you can click through from our new website there directly to the page to buy the book on Amazon. For a limited period until the end of November, it's only £7.99, which is a saving of £7 on the normal price. As its name suggests, we've made it a very simple guide to GDPR, but nonetheless a guide which covers everything that you need to do to ensure that your organisation is UK GDPR compliant. And so we'd be extremely grateful if you'd purchase a copy of our new book. Profits from the book help to go towards the cost of running the GDPR Weekly Show. And of course, if you've got any feedback on the book, then please either leave the feedback on Amazon or alternatively, email us, as usual, at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We really hope you like the book. We've put many hours into its production and we hope, like the podcast, you find it extremely useful. This week, negotiators from the European Council and the European Parliament reached a provisional agreement on a new law to promote the availability of data and build a trustworthy environment to facilitate its use for research and the creation of new services and products. The Data Governments Act will set up robust mechanisms to facilitate the reuse of certain categories of protected public sector data, increase trust in data intermediation services and foster data altruism across the EU. It is an important component of the European strategy for data which aims to bolster the data economy, increase wealth and well-being and give Europe a competitive advantage to the benefit of its citizens and businesses. The President of the Council, Slovenian Minister for Public Administration, said the Data Governments Act is a major milestone that will boost the data-driven economy in Europe in the years to come. By enabling control and creating trust, it will help unlock the potential of vast amounts of data generated by businesses and individuals. This is indispensable for the development of artificial intelligence applications and critical for the EU's global competitiveness in this area. Data-powered innovation will help us address a range of social challenges and drive economic growth, which is so important for the post-COVID recovery. 
The Data Governance Act will create a mechanism to enable the safe reuse of certain categories of public sector data that are subject to the rights of others. This includes, for example, trade secrets, personal data and data protected by intellectual property rights. Public sector bodies allowing this type of reuse will need to be properly equipped in technical terms to ensure that their privacy and confidentiality are fully preserved. In this respect, the Data Governance Act will complement the Open Data Directive from 2019, which does not cover these types of data. Exclusive arrangements for the reuse of public sector data will be possible when justified and necessary for the provision of a service of general interest. The maximum duration for existing contracts will be two and a half years, and for new contracts will be just 12 months. The Commission will set up a European single access point with a searchable electronic register of public sector data. This register will be available via national single information points. The Data Governments Act creates a framework to foster a new business model, data intermediation services, which will provide a secure environment in which companies or individuals can share data. For companies, these services can take the form of digital platforms, which will support voluntary data sharing between companies or facilitate the fulfilment of data sharing obligations set by law. By using these services, companies are able to share their data without fear of it being misused or losing their competitive advantage. For personal data, such services and their providers will help individuals exercise their rights under GDPR. This will help people have full control over their data and allow them to share it with the company they trust. This can be done, for example, by means of novel personal information management tools, such as personal data spaces or data wallets, which are apps that share such data with others based on the data holder's consent. Data intermediation service providers will need to be listed in the register so that their clients know they can trust them. The service providers will not be allowed to use shared data for other purposes. They will not be able to benefit from the data, for example, by selling it on. They may, however, charge for the transactions they do carry out. The Data Governance Act also makes it easier for individuals and companies to make data voluntarily available for the common good. This might, for example, apply to medical research projects. Entities seeking to collect data for objectives of general interest may request to be listed in the National Register of Recognised Data altruistic organisations. Registered organisations will be recognised across the EU. This will create the necessary trust in data altruism, encouraging individuals and companies to donate data to such organisations so that it can be used for the wider good of society. If an organisation wants to be recognised as a data altruism organisation under the Data Governance Act, it will have to comply with a specific rulebook. Voluntary certification in the form of a logo will make it easier to identify compliant providers of data intermediation services and data altruism organisations. A new structure, the European Data Innovation Board, will be created to advise and assist the Commission in enhancing the interoperability of data intermediation services and issuing guidelines on how to facilitate the development of data spaces amongst other tasks. The Data Governments Act creates safeguards for public sector data, data intermediation services and data altruism organisations against unlawful international transfer and or government access to non-personal data. For personal data, the EU already has similar safeguards under the GDPR, and of course that also applies here in the UK, with a few small exceptions. In particular, the Commission, through secondary legislation, may adopt adequacy decisions declaring the specific non-EU countries provide appropriate safeguards for the use of non-personal data transferred from the EU. These decisions would be similar to the adequacy decisions relating to personal data under GDPR. Such safeguards should be considered to exist when the country in question has equivalent measures in place to ensure that a level of protection similar to that provided by the EU is provided in the third-party country. The Commission may also adopt model contractual clauses to support public sector bodies and reusers in the case of transfers of public sector data to third countries. The new rules will apply 15 months after the entry into force of the regulation.
The provisional agreement reached today is subject to approval by the European Council. It will now be submitted to the Council's Permanent Representatives Committee for endorsement. As we get further updates on this, we will of course bring it to you in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year from the GDPR Weekly Show. Stay safe, stay home, save lives. The Irish Council for Civil Liberties, the ICCL, filed a formal complaint against the European Commission before the European Ombudsman on Monday this week, the 29th of November, for failing to monitor enforcement of the EU's data protection law known as GDPR and for not holding Ireland accountable. ICCL's complaint is unusual as it's divided into two components. The first part might have stronger resonance as it highlights the fact that the EU executive has not put in place a monitoring mechanism to keep track of the implementation of GDPR. The second part replies to the fact that the Commission has not held Ireland accountable for allegedly failing to apply GDPR. In September, the ICCL published a report indicating the Irish DPC only reached a decision on 2% of the cross-border cases it is leading on. Not only has the European Commission not acted, but it's also not even gathered information to know whether to act, Johnny Ryan, a senior fellow at ICCL, said. Johnny went on to say... We are pointing to a deep problem with GDPR and the problem seems to be that this commission has no interest in the data protection agenda of the previous commission. The Irish NGO acknowledged that the commission, as the guardian of the treaties, has significant room for discretion in deciding whether or not to launch an infringement procedure against member states that are openly against or fail to uphold EU law. However, the complaint noted that the EU executive has a duty to monitor whether EU rules are being properly applied. While the NGO urged Justice Commissioner Didier Reinders in September to take action against Ireland is now reporting the EU executive for maladministration. Johnny Ryan tracked the origin of the complaint to the research behind the report published in September for which ICCL interviewed virtually all EU data protection authorities and analysed the data provided by the European Data Protection Board, the EDPB, that gathers them. What we learned is that the statistics that were given to the European Commission were completely inadequate, Ryan said. He gave examples of how many cases each privacy watchdog is the lead for, how many times authorities have used their investigative or sanctioning powers, and the number of days needed to move from a complaint to a draft decision and there to a final decision. None of this data is currently available. The European Ombudsman will now review the complaint and decide whether to open an inquiry. In 2019, 79% of the EU Ombudsman's recommendations were taken on board by the European Commission. The ICCL is not the only one to point the finger at Ireland's DPC. Other data protection authorities in the EU have also accused the Irish regulator of falling short of its obligations. The overwhelming majority of very large tech companies have legal bases in Ireland, which therefore has the lead for most cross-border cases. The European Parliament also joined in the debate in May this year, as EU lawmakers adopted a non-binding resolution calling on the European Commission to open an infringement procedure against Ireland, precisely for allegedly failing to apply GDPR. The EDPS, the European Data Protection Supervisor, has recently announced a conference in June next year to reconsider GDPR enforcement architecture. Ongoing inefficiencies in GDPR enforcement have also influenced the policy discussions on the Digital Services Act. For the ICCL, the Commissioner's lack of action has unintended consequences also for disinformation and market power, two issues the EU executive has been trying to address through new legislation. What this Commission needs to do is return again to GDPR and see that the piece of law is enforced because when it's not, what is the point of having a new generation of digital law, Ryan said. Again, we will follow this case with interest and bring you regular updates here on GDPR Weekly Show. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. 
On a similar theme, a senior European Commission official warned this week that the bloc's privacy rules may have to change to put more power in the hands of EU institutions wading into a debate that has played GDPR right from day one. Breaking with the orthodoxy of Europe's privacy rulebook, GDPR, Commission Vice President Vera Zurova said either we will we'll all collectively show that GDPR enforcement is effective or it will have to change and any potential changes will go towards more centralisation. The changes would most likely put more powers in the hands of the EU executive or the EDPB, she told delegates at a conference in Brussels. The comments will weigh heavily into a debate on who should have the right to enforce the bloc's privacy rules between member countries where big tech companies have established their headquarters, mostly Ireland and Luxembourg, and major institutions like the European Commission, the European Data Protection Supervisor, the EDPS, and the EDPB. It's known that the EDPS is amongst those leaning towards reform of GDPR. As we previously mentioned, the EDPS is putting on a conference in 2022 to discuss alternative models of enforcement of GDPR, including a more centralised approach. The split goes to the heart of the debate around GDPR enforcement, the one-stop-shop mechanism which requires that companies are regulated by the country in which they are legally established. That system has led to criticism that countries like Ireland and Luxembourg, which host almost all the big tech companies, are acting as an enforcement bottleneck. The establishment of a pan-European authority has been floated to bolster EU enforcement in major cross-border cases involving companies like Facebook and Google. The EU already has similar systems in place in areas like competition and anti-money laundering law. Helen Dixon, the Irish Data Protection Commissioner, said, I don't think it's the time to be thinking about what should the GDPR be amended, but I think we need to be having a conversation to look at what's working and what's not working and learning now so that in the future and potential changes to Europe's privacy rules can be looked at. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. We've always said here at the GDPR Weekly Show that whilst there is sometimes focus on financial penalties, there ought to be more focus on reputational damage to companies from having a data breach, or indeed any breach of GDPR. And for those companies operating internationally, there's now a third reason to pay attention. The US Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, has begun to take aim at the business practices that can lead to data breaches. Now, while you may think the SEC's role is just in terms of stocks and the stock market, but it has a three-part mission to protect investors, to facilitate capital formation, and to maintain fair, orderly, and efficient markets. To protect investors, the SEC works to make sure consumers are not investing their hard-earned money in a company's stock based on false or misleading information. The SEC aims for transparency, so they require each business to disclose all types of risks that can affect the company's earnings, and in the end, their stock price. The possible risks encompass much more than fraud. They can include everything from supply chain issues to natural disasters. The purpose is to share anything and everything that could possibly affect the financial future of the company. This is why the SEC cares about cybersecurity, because according to the IBM cost of a data breach report 2021, the average cost of a ransomware attack, the costiest type of breach, is 4.62 million US dollars. And the average cost of the least costly type of data breach, breaches in a hybrid cloud environment, is still expensive at $3.61 million. This means that a company's cybersecurity practices pay a large part in a company's revenue. Even minor breaches can result in severe losses. Very few cybersecurity issues develop because of a single poor decision or mistake. Instead, there are multiple choices and factors that lead to the vulnerabilities that allow breaches to happen. The issue concerns the SEC because when an organisation faces a major incident, 
The price of that company's stock almost always goes down. The IBM Tosser for Data Breach Report 2021 found that the Tosser for Breach increased by 10% between 2020 and 2021. Breaches involving remote work, i.e. people working from home, cost $1 million more than many other breaches. Reputation, of course, is a hard thing to quantify, but the report does indicate that 38% of the cost of a breach comes from lost business. The SEC itself is starting to leverage fines to companies with poor cybersecurity practices. In July 2021, the SEC settled with Pearson PLC, a London-based public education publishing company. Pearson agreed to pay $1 million in response to charges of misleading investors regarding the 2018 breach, which included the theft of millions of student records, including dates of birth and email addresses. The SEC's stance was that Pearson did not have good enough disclosure controls and procedures. And Pearson's isn't the only case. In August this year, the SEC announced actions against eight financial firms for failures in their cybersecurity procedures and policies. Each of the companies had email account takeovers that caused exposure of client personal information, and the settlements ranged between $200,000 and $300,000 for each company. Now, we know that Chief Information Security Officers and Data Protection Officers, DPOs, find it difficult sometimes to impress on their company board just how important cybersecurity is. So this news from the SEC will perhaps act as a great lever of how cybersecurity incidents cost reputation and money. Plus, no one wants to get fined by the SEC. It's just not good for your reputation. If this article has prompted you to take action and you need some help, then please do reach out to us by using the contact details that are coming up right now. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurance production. Until next time, bye-bye.